Broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Capital Club Radio, brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance. Please welcome your host, Chairman and CEO, Michael Flock. Good afternoon, and welcome to Capital Club Radio. We're honored today to uh, introduce our guest here, Keith Myers, Managing Director of KBW. He's, if not the leading banker, one of the leading investment bankers in the specialty finance world and specifically the world of uh, debt buying, credit, and collections. Keith heads up a new financial services group at KBW, which covers specialty finance, mortgage finance, securities, alternative asset management, and financial technology. He came to KBW with 17 years of experience serving strategic and private equity investors in the sector. He gained a very robust track record at Raymond James, where I first met him, where he was managing director in financial services investment banking, and from Morgan Keegan, where he was head of financial services and transaction processing. He began his career in business advisory services and assurance practice at Deloitte Touche. He's got an MBA from the Fuqua School of Business at Duke and a BSBA from Washington University in St. Louis. Keith, it's great to have you here today. Yeah, I appreciate the invite. Tell, tell me, though, how does someone who's in accounting at Deloitte Touche get into investment banking? I mean, that, people in accounting sometimes are very different than investment bankers. And <laughs> t- tell me how you made that transition and why. You know, it was, uh, I think, Accounting and particularly audit is a is a very good stepping stone to other things. Is the way I looked uh-huh. at it. You know, accounting is the the benchmark of business. Being able to understand the financials is very critical to what we do in our business. And uh, so I always looked at it as a place to start my career. I actually enjoyed it uh, tremendously. Had some great clients and uh, colleagues that I work with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really wanted to get into a more proactive role in in, in accounting, particularly audit. Your looking at what has already been done, you're mm-hmm. not actually creating value going forward. So I wanted to get into a into a role that, you know, we could really make things happen, not okay. look at what other people were recording that already happened. So uh-huh. uh, investment banking, you know, is a very rewarding um, career because when we come in and we do a transaction, whether it's raising debt, raising equity, um, acquiring a company for one of our clients, right. selling one of our clients, uh, we have changed the position of that company you know, to the positive. We either given liquidity to someone that's built a business from scratch. We've given them more capital to grow and serve their clients. Mm-hmm. And so you know, to me, it's the most rewarding experience I could have. And we get to see companies across the spectrum and across the world and, and really get a feel for you know, what works well for companies, what hasn't worked, different management teams, different management styles. It's, it's a very unique experience that's hard to replicate outside of investment banking. So it sounds like it's much more transformative. You're reengineering a business through either raising capital or negotiating an acquisition or a merger. And so whereas I guess at Deloitte Touche, when you're in auditing, you're reviewing things that have happened, whereas, and you said making things happen in investment banking, you are making changes, you are making new businesses. So it's a very different kind of job. So that's why I was kind of curious how someone makes that transition because... Yeah, you know, we look, we, we interview a lot of folks to, to come into our 
role and you know everybody's got their different strengths and weaknesses and you know it's 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 this is a client service business so we need uh-huh. people that are um you know engaged and really care about what the what our clients think because we're really consultants right with a transactional bent in nature so you know we i think we're a cross between you know consultants financial advisors you know structuring agents and really psychologists um during a deal you psychologists <laughs> now that's a that's a new one why psychologists you know the deals <laughs> meander a lot of different ways uh-huh. and you know this is usually the when we work with a client it's usually the biggest transaction of their careers uh-huh. um and transformative as you said for the companies we work with and so you know you've obviously built a successful company and so if you're in a transaction things go positive things go negative and so a lot of what we do is keep our clients calm <laughs> um <laughs> yeah we we always joke deals die three times before they close so you know there's always times when it's going to get um troubled and we need to make sure that uh we keep everybody kind of on board and and not doing anything sensational during the process you just answered one of my next questions, which is, what are some of the personal traits that investment bankers need to be successful? And you kind of surprised me because, you know, the typical response would be, you know, understanding finance and accounting and the capital markets and how to analyze a business. But the psychology and keeping everybody calm, that's that's a surprising uh, trait. Yeah, that, when, when we, we hire very talented guys out of, you know, undergrad and out of MBA programs. And the most interesting thing, they come in and they say, well, we do a lot less modeling and uh-huh. structuring than we expected. It's a lot more positioning companies, understanding the companies, being able to articulate it to potential investors, private equity firms, debt providers, strategics, than it is about you know, just brute force you know, financial modeling. We, we can teach all that. Right. That's something that you know these kids are all book smart it's really to take it to the next level it's you know how can you interact uh-huh. and tell stories well and how can you interact with clients and you know be their advocate positioning against you know someone that's in that's trying to get the best deal for themselves but ultimately they're going to be working with their clients so you have to really tread kind of carefully about um making sure that it at the end of the day you've got a client and you've got an investor and they're going to be working together for you know five plus years so mm-hmm. it has to work out for both parties at the end of the day that is really interesting so it's really about relationship management as it is about numbers then right yeah 100 percent. i mean as you in, in investment banking as you progress it it your the skill sets change right okay. an analyst um or a banker just starting out is really you know involved more in the day-to-day numbers etc where, where my role is really about um, information flow. Okay. Right? How do I, you know, you, we are we are hired by our clients because of our expertise and knowledge um, that we can disseminate, but also being respectful and keeping confidential our clients' information, mm-hmm. um, which is something we pride ourselves on. That you know, we're never an information leak about a company when we sit down. Whether or not there's any in place, everything is very confidential. Um, but we can aggregate. Right to show information, industry trends, and things like that that are valuable, you know, across the spectrum. So I imagine then you have to be a good listener. To manage information, you have to listen well as in addition to being articulate and being able to communicate. Were you, were you saying something? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, absolutely. I, 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 it's, it's as much about 
listening. And, and frankly, look, companies that are uh, uh, owner-operated, they're and passionate usually about their business. And so okay. you know, hearing people talk about their business is very rewarding. Usually it's, it's an excitement level they have. Right. So to, to us, listening is a lot more valuable than speaking. You know, we'll, right. we'll tell you what we right. hear and what's going on in the industry, but really hearing about the unique um, attributes of our clients and companies we meet out there is a very rewarding for us. So when you were at business school at Duke, did they teach you? Do you have courses in listening or communications or it was pretty much just the finance and that's right i mean there's capital. that there is there's business school is a great um training ground but it's more about the technical skills okay okay um and, and it's you know when you're out there you, you look you you should uh, as you're pressing any business you should have role models that you follow and so i think you can learn a lot from everybody in the business so as i was coming up to the ranks yeah, I work for a lot of different managing directors um, and VPs, et cetera, and you can take away attributes from each of those bankers, uh-huh. in my case, that I thought was positive and negative and collectively figure out what works for you and your own personality and persona and hopefully become a better banker than any of those folks uh-huh. because you've taken their attributes and, and applied them to you and seen what works and what doesn't. So. It's always about learning. You know, every every year in this business, I reflect back as I did at the beginning of the year and said, "What did I learn?" Mm-hmm. Um, and every year, and I've been doing this for almost twenty years now, I've come across and said, "Wow, I really learned a lot this year." Okay, um, and that's what makes my job so rewarding. Is it's not it's never dull. Um, we meet new and exciting companies every year, and management teams, and and folks that become long term clients. Whether they're with one company, they may switch and go to another's, and and uh, we get a chance to work with them over their course of their career, and that's, that's again, a very rewarding experience. So then I imagine uh, in your role as managing director here with 26 people on your staff at KBW, then you spend a lot of time coaching uh, the people about these kind of interpersonal communications and relationship skills. Is that right? It, it, it is. I mean, the, the, the way we look at it is the more we train our team, the junior folks, the better they become and the and the more work they can take on and the it makes my job easier right um, also you know the the in today's world it's people have a lot of opportunities to move elsewhere whether it's to private equity to clients they're always being solicited from with their talented and we have to make their experience rewarding mm-hmm. so that they want to stay and can continue to progress so we we have a um, we do have a training program, a mentoring program that we're uh, implementing this year, actually, to, to reinvigorate that since we've got, you know, a very large swath of what we call junior bankers, but uh, analysts, okay. associates that we need to train and mentor um, so they don't leave and you know, take the training we did and, and go elsewhere. It's exciting. So let's fast forward now. What You're at KBW. You took, is it the same team, basically, from Raymond James and... Uh, that's yeah, so uh, that's a good question. Um, the a big piece of the team did um, leave for Raymond James at the same time. Um, we uh, we've been working together the core unit for Raymond James for over a decade since mm-hmm. our Morgan Keegan days. Um, and you know, there's a huge value to having a cohesive team that works together that has the the, the, the knowledge base that we all uh-huh. do. And so we collectively made a decision that. Um, we wanted to, you know, we were looking, um, or really KBW came calling, and 
we said, you know, can you validate that you're a better platform than we have? Because we're very happy at Raymond James. Raymond James is a great company. Um, between Raymond James and Morgan Keating, which was acquired by Raymond James, I was there for 17 years and have a lot of friends um, and colleagues still there. Um, but, you know, we believe that KBW was a better platform for what we were trying to achieve and for our clients long term because um, KBW is exclusively focused on financial services, banks, and insurance companies. Uh, we see obviously and that's your strength. That's our that's our strength. Your it's history, what they, experience. It's what they do um, across the spectrum. So we have 350 professionals in KBW that exclusively focus on this sector, financial services in general. And so there's really no deal or activity that happens mm-hmm. that we don't hear about. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the power of what we've got. And so we uh, we also saw that there's going to be a convergence between. Um, banks and the non-banks, with banks being acquirers right. or banks working with, in the case of a lot of the fintech lenders that we deal with, um, and being less adversarial and more collaborative, that if we had <coughs> the best banking practice, depository practice out there, you know, we can better get into the, 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 any bank in the country and be able to bring solutions to our clients, to, to JV, to be sold, to be bought, etc., mm-hmm. across the ecosystem. And it's, it's really proven to be the case this year. Uh, in 2017, we closed 74 transactions in my practice. Um, it was a, a mix between M&A advisory work, debt raising, uh, and then both equity and debt in the, in the capital and in the, in the public markets. So it was a pretty robust year wow. for uh, our team. 74 transactions, you said, in one year? In 2017, just in our wow. just in our group, twenty six people. Correct. That's a that's a hell of a lot of a lot of transactions. Yeah. Well, you know, it was interesting. We're we were, we're doing our group planning for the year, and when I finally tallied it up, I said that's a that's a pretty impressive number for for a group of our size. Right. You know, the markets have been very very strong since um, the election, uh-huh. um, which has been helpful. But you know, we've all been very very busy and and. I think it's a good testament to the reputation of our team that we can attract so many clients, and we were very, you know, we're fortunate and feel very rewarded that that we had so many clients uh, support us this past year with our, with engaging us. So, seventy four transactions for two thousand seventeen. What was your goal for seventeen? Uh, <laughs> it was it was probably less than half uh, to be to be candid. You know, oh really? You, you were going to do one hundred and fifty so. in one year. No, no. Last year it was oh, you mean, oh, oh. for yeah. You know, we we our budget was you know probably half those transactions. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. So we exceeded our you know our quota. Um, okay. And you know, 2018 it looks to be very strong in in in, in the debt buying industry, for instance. You know, we see very favorable tailwinds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the CFPB has been you know probably going to be more rational than it historically has been. Um, less punitive to you know clients and our our clients and uh, folks in the industry. Um, you know, there's been an uptick in, in charge-offs uh, or in delinquencies, which will lead to charge-offs. Some of the bigger banks we expect to come back to the marketplace. So, uh, you know, consumer credit's at an all-time high um, past the 2009 uh, time frame. Uh, and so we, we, we believe that it's going to be good times for the several years ahead with, you know, charge-offs increasing, new supply coming to market that may have not been there, which should moderate prices and make it more attractive for um, the players that are still remaining uh-huh. to really grow well. Well, let's talk about the outlook then for this year, uh, Keith, since the majority of our, our audience is from the debt buying and credit and collection worlds. Can you uh, 
comment a little further on how this is going to happen? I mean, are there more banks jumping into the market uh, finally? I know people have said there have been rumors of some of the big banks even last year jumping in, but they didn't. So why is this year going to be different? There's been a – I think a lot of it's due to regulatory. Okay. Um, so banks, you know, they're they're scared of the shadow a little bit. Um, the regulators have a much more um, hand in, in how they do business than in other industries. And so if the regulatory environment is more moderate, mm-hmm. um, i.e. more pro-business than it was, which is, which is, is the case and expected to be the case, then the banks are usually more willing to um, – to leverage what they should, which is third parties, um, like third-party collectors and debt buyers, to maximize um, their earnings and their further shareholder value. So we, we believe that the, the moderation of CPB, the rules that have been in place in the industry for a number of years that, that are you know, showing they're not going to change, gives people a much better perspective mm-hmm. in the banks. And so we, we expect you know, B of A, J.P. Morgan, Wells, some of the bigger banks – We'll start to come back to the marketplace. Right. Timing, we don't know, obviously. Okay. But um, we, we think that the the environment is more conducive than it has been in years for that. You still need to be a very compliant debt buyer. You have to be able – you're going to get very scrutinized to do business um, as a third-party collector or as a purchaser of their debt. Right. Then historically, because they're going to be very cautious and do business only with folks that have good reputations – um, and long track record, but we we see those debt buyers being uh, rewarded for regulatory compliance, et cetera, and being able to get some of this business. So, with supply growing, then do you uh, anticipate that prices are going to decline a little bit? Because right now, in credit card, they're still very very high. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I can't. That's not really a forte of us predicting prices. Right, <laughs> so I'm gonna right. I'm gonna step back on that answer. Right. But you know, supply and demand being you know out there, we would expect um, you know pricing to to moderate. Okay. Um, if more supply, you know, there has been if you look a consolidation of debt buyers over mm-hmm. the years, mm-hmm. um, and so there's there's less providers out there. Okay. Um, less debt buyers, less collection companies. And that should again bode well for them, mm-hmm. um, because as supply goes up and there's there's less mm-hmm. demand for buying, we should we should see pricing get back to realistic levels. And also, if you see the regulatory environment uh, softening up a little bit, does that mean that there are more opportunity for middle market debt buyers who don't have the same infrastructure as the very large ones who can't afford some of the regulations that are in place? We we the be, underbanked yes. essentially yeah look there there's not it's very hard to just jump into it being a debt buyer today there there's you still need to have the compliance you, there's you you need to uh, adhere to all the rules you have to have the right policy procedures mm-hmm. you have to police your collectors right you have, if you're outsourcing you have to police those guys so it's a it's an area that if you're uh, an existing player mm-hmm. you've got a huge step ahead because. It's very hard to start from scratch in today's marketplace, mm-hmm. right? So you know, there's guys obviously that have done it before that can show a previous track record that can that can come out and become a player. But in general, if you are out there today, you know you're not gonna there's there's not gonna be as much competition in this industry. We believe in new entrants than there are in some of the other areas that we cover. Okay, okay. So the market's improving. Um, 
volumes are up, supplies up, uh, compliance is moderating. Why would, you know, what would be a good reason? Why would a, a middle market collection agency or a debt buyer uh, want to use an investment bank right now to raise capital? Um, I mean, interest rates are still pretty low. Isn't it pretty easy for companies to go out and do it on their own? What's the value, essentially, then, of, a, of an investment banking process? And, and how would you describe that? Yeah, we, we look, if you, if you have banking partners that are supporting you, you know, you should continue to use them. Um, for, the, for the most part, we see, you know, we, we, we run processes, whether it's for debt, for equity, uh, for sub-debt. Um, so we get the best rates and terms out there. We put your banking partners in competition with each other uh-huh. for your business. It's similar supply and demand. If you have multiple people trying to um, get your business, win your business, you're going to get better terms mm-hmm. um, than, than not. So the value that we bring is that we know everyone in the marketplace that's looking for the space. We know what deals have been done, what terms are out there. Um, and what we focus on is really trying to structure transactions that fit our clients. So, you know, collection curves, depending on asset classes, differ mm-hmm. from company to company. And, you know, we are able to um, put forth transactions and structure transactions that fit our clients. Right. And they're not forced upon them by either a private equity firm, a bank, or another non-bank, you know, financial provider. And so we, you know, working with us... Uh, on our on your side gives you an agent that you know is protecting your best interest, um, and I think we've proven time and time again that our the value we bring far exceeds the fees that it costs uh-huh. to hire us. Um, but you know we've had we've done a lot of transactions in the space uh, over the years that um, you know we've got a pretty good track record of, uh, of folks working with us that you know ultimately those. What are, are some of the memorable deals that you've done? You don't have to mention names, but what are some some of the successful ones, and what are some of the ones that failed? Tell our listeners, you know, some of the horror stories. Or, <laughs> I mean, I think one of yeah. one of your, the famous quotes I remember of you uh, is that uh, you said, you know, all deals die three times before they close. So I guess it's they're never easy, and yet some of them do die and never come back. So could you give us some examples of ones that died, never came back, and then other ones that were very successful and why? Sure. You know, it, it's sometimes it's about timing. So we, we were in market with, you know, a company right before the uh, the financial crisis, and um, this was really a third-party servicer. In uh, the day we were about to launch, um, Lehman went under. And Lehman was one of their largest clients, like literally 50% of their EBITDA. <laughs> uh-huh. And so, you know, that was... That was a you know moment of aha. So do we go forward or not? And basically, what our clients said at this point is, look, Lehman can't get rid of us. Um, this was not a debt buyer; it was a servicer. But uh, they said Lehman can't get rid of us, and it's going to take years for them to like wind down their portfolio. So our revenue actually will go up because things will go into special servicing. And so we ended up moving forward um, and got proposals, but there was always a um, a question mark. No one wanted to pay full value for the Lehman business because um, you know, they didn't know whether it could be pulled or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, that company was ultimately ultimately sold, and it went to a private equity firm, and ended up being a good transaction for the the founders of the company. Um, you know, another business that we were working with it was actually a debt buyer. We were in market with. It was going to be sold to a very unique bank, 
that was in New Orleans. And the day after Katrina hit, we were supposed to have a conference call, and there was silence. And uh, about a week later, the uh, we finally got a hold of the chairman, and he said, you know, we're going to have to pull from the deal because, frankly, we don't know. Most of our branch, branches are underwater, <laughs> uh-huh. and we're pretty much out of business. And that, okay. that doesn't exist today. But um, we ended up also getting that transaction done um, with another another bidder. But, uh, you know, you, you always have issues during transactions. And the, the ones I mentioned were were uh, market conditions, right? There's nothing we could do to, um, uh, you know, or know that Lehman was going to go under or know that there was okay. going to be a, a hurricane hit. But for company-specific reasons, the, the, one of the biggest reasons that we see deals fail is because there's a surprise. And usually it's a financial surprise. So the financials that we that our clients put forth – under scrutiny did not hold up. Okay. That, you know, there was, you know, things weren't gap, and so your earnings were not $50 million, but, they were But earnings 20. are always audited, right? So... Well, but, um, you know, that is that is true, usually. Um, but there but still can be surprises. Even, even, you know, even with, with top-notch firms, uh, audit firms, uh, if they're not industry experts, they may not catch things that mm-hmm. they should have because there's uniqueness... In the in the business, in debt buying, uh, in collections that are not in traditional manufacturing businesses. So usually, when um, a firm comes in to invest capital, they'll do what is called the quality of earnings, a QOV, quality of earnings analysis. Okay. Which is not a full audit, but it's basically they look at the largest items. You know, how are you doing your ERCs? Um, you know, the uh, effective interest ma- yield method. Right. You know, or is it done correctly? And sometimes there's not strong CFOs in position, and mm-hmm. you know they, the auditors don't don't catch it because their their job is to really review the work that's been done and not really um, create new accounting methodologies. Not an auditor's role. So that that's where we see kind of the biggest areas that deals die. Another one is look if the, if you have projections out there that you don't hit. So during the process, if you're predicting you're going to earn a million dollars a right. month and you end up at 800, it gives people pause to, right. you know, question: Are your predictions for two years out really okay. fruition? So, uh-huh. um, so we spend a lot of time with our clients um, reviewing their financials um, and making sure they're comfortable with the projections. You know, we're not auditors, so we don't um, opine upon the accounting. That's really what our clients do. Mm-hmm. Um, but we rely upon that. But ultimately, it's going to be checked and uh, okay. and looked at, whether it's you know, with a bank or a private equity firm or a strategic. They're all going to come in okay. and want to make sure what they're buying is actually what they're getting. So no surprises, hitting your numbers, uh, making sure the numbers are real. Those are some common denominators of success. Or if they're not there, they're fail- that's a common denominator right. of a failure. That's right. I mean, you know, if you, if you set expectations – um, and go out with information that is, you know, accurate, um, and we take a deal on, you know, it's a very high probability for it to get done. Again, there may be macro issues. Um, but what we try to do is set expectations with our client on value, on results, and if there's a misalignment of interest, we'll not take the transaction on. Um, you want to make sure that your your clients, if you, if you collectively believe that an outcome is a is a good one that you know they believe it's a good one right, right? so if we deliver higher 
than uh, than that, whether it's valuation or better terms, et cetera, that's deemed as a success and not a failure if they were thinking something else. Right. Just mentioned the word valuation, of course. That's critical to, to deals. Um, can you comment uh, or summarize kind of the KBW view of valuation methodologies for the debt buying or collection industry? Because I know there are two, three, or four of them out there that are fairly common. How would you look at those different methodologies? Uh, you know, it's, it, it varies based upon the companies. Um, so even same, companies within the same space, whether debt buyers, um, two debt buyers may be valued differently depending on um, their own unique attributes. You know, in general, um, buyers will look at what the estimated rating collections are and look at validating those and then discounting those back to see what a value is for the existing portfolio. Um, there's also a value to the franchise. So if you've got a good origination source, you've got good strong mm-hmm. flow clients, that will add on to that. But um, ultimately, we'll look at those. We look at a price-to-book value metric. Uh-huh. We look at you know, price-to-earnings. Um, you know, adjusted EBITDA as a as a benchmark for how much cash flow can be used to support operations okay. and, and to reinvest in. So just that's pools. EBITDA minus the amortization. <laughs> that's right. So you're looking at kind of what's the overall cash flow that comes in to right. finance the business okay. and to okay. purchase. Uh-huh. Um, and you look at all those different things. When you're looking at just straight collection companies that don't have balance sheets, it's more of cash flow metrics. So it's straight, right. EBITDA, so it's straight or, EBITDA or earnings. And the multiples vary according to the size of the company or they, they, history. They do. It's it's um, expected growth. It's size. Um, obviously, if you're growing faster, uh-huh. then you're going to be throwing off more earnings long term, mm-hmm. and so therefore you should be valued higher. Um, bigger companies usually have more stability. So usually, once you get over a certain higher size, multiple, right. you'll have a slightly higher multiple. There's also okay. less. There's also more competition, so uh-huh. if you're trying to sell to one of the big strategics, right. there's a scarcity of larger deals out there, so right. they're usually willing to pay a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so we look at a lot of different things, and and um, you know, and then you also look at where the public comps are trading. So you got period on okay. typically, and that will be kind of a gating benchmark for mm-hmm. um, for valuation. So you you want to cheer them on, you want to make sure they're right. they're doing well, and there's no issues out there um, that are depressing their price because that will ultimately impact you as a private seller. So discounted cash flow for debt buyers that's you could argue is fairly straightforward. Although I know there are lots of nuances to how you define all that, but what's what's more uh, ambiguous, I think, is that multiple that's assigned to the platforms of debt buyers. And you, you you sort of hinted at it well as the size, you know, of the company, maybe the age of the company. What else would drive up that kind of valuation of the platform as distinct from the cash flow of the portfolios? I, I mean that's the, that's a that's a big question because um, you know we see a lot of different folks. So you can you can have expertise in multiple asset classes that gives you more diversity. Right. You can have certain collection methodologies that others don't have. You but can, more asset classes are better than fewer, or it depends. Depends. Uh, again, it's 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 really unique. So if you are if there's a particular buyer that just wants what you have and you're a specialist, that may be of higher value than if you're a generalist. Um, if someone is looking to get to, to acquire a platform that they're going to grow with more capital, they may want more diversity to show that if one sector is priced improperly, then you don't have to deploy capital um, at, at poor rates. You can all, you can rotate into other asset classes. Mm-hmm. So it, it really depends. You know what what we pride ourselves on is there's no cookie cutter approach to what we do. 
We try to look at what is the secret sauce of our clients, what's the, the value they bring, extract that. What differentiates them. That's really what we focus on. And, okay. um, and, that's, uh, and then we, we work to, with, the, with our clients to really bring that out in an in a information memorandum that, that so will tip- really portray the company. Typically, what is it? That, is it is it the results of the of the business? Is it the expertise, the experience in a certain asset class? Is it the leadership? Is it technology? It, it's it's all of the above. Okay. Um, so if if there's a technological difference that is sustainable, you know, we will tease that out. We will try to make sure that, that is prevalent. That shows this is how they're getting the results. But ultimately, it ends up being results. Mm-hmm. Right, you can say we're the greatest company in the world, and if your results are terrible, right, right. <laughs> um, then no one's going to really believe what you're saying and, and pay a lot for the value of the platform. Okay. So we're just about to wrap it up, Keith. And uh, you know, I know everybody believes that investment bankers make millions and millions of dollars every year, and you know, you, you but but you know, in this industry, there are so many uh, middle market guys that are. It's say, well, we've got you know two or three relationships with these banks, with these private equity funds. Uh, why do we really need an investment bank to pay them all this money? There's it costs so much. It's what a few percentage points of all the capital, and you know, isn't it better to do it ourselves and save the money? Why? Tell us the the KBW kind of perspective on what's your your pitch now to our audience about why? I, I wish we all made millions, millions of dollars. <laughs> um, look. You know, really, what we when you're going to go into a transaction um, and you align yourself with a bank, a financing source, a private equity firm, you're locking yourself up for a number of years. Like this is going to be your partner, um, so you need to make sure you're getting the best transaction out there, um, both in uh, a partner. Mm-hmm. You know, the best transaction doesn't have to be price, it doesn't have to be terms. It can be whatever a client thinks is best. So they may say, "We want the best partner. That's going to be the the most flexible." so that we can enter various asset classes. Um, they may say we need it to be the lowest rate because we're going we're gonna to be trying to buy things that are a little bit cheaper, and so we need to push our rate down. Right. It may be that we need the highest advance rate on the credit facility so that we have to give it less equity. Okay. So there's a lot of different reasons. Um, and if you're doing it for the first time, you don't know that you're getting the best deal. Right. So oftentimes I'll say, look at us as an insurance policy to make sure that you're not making a mistake. Okay. You're going to have some an advocate on your side mm-hmm. um, that will ensure that you're getting the best outcome possible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's if you're just you know looking at one bank and they know you're the only person they're talking to, they don't have the incentive to give you the best deal. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's really a big piece of what we do, and there is you know we also provide a, a kind of a seal of approval. So we do our work on companies. If if we right. take a company to market, it's because we believe in our clients. Okay. Uh, and since we've been doing this for so long, counterparties out there know that we've done our work, and they're more apt to right. look at the company than that's if a good they're point. if they're doing it on their own. Of that. Yep. So, you know, it's our seal of approval. You're putting we're putting the KBW brand on our clients right. and the materials. Uh, and that means a lot. I mean uh-huh. we're you know, we uh, we talk every day to all different providers. They ask us you know, which clients we're gonna be bringing to market, um, what opportunities we have out there, and we are their biggest deal source. So we bring a lot of opportunities to them that they would not see otherwise. And it's a lot easier for them to um, 
take our information very neatly packaged with all the information we know they need to make a right. quick informed decision then if a if a company goes directly to them right. and they say all right well now you've got to give us all this information we've already provided it to them in a very airtight package that makes it very easy to say yay or nay versus them having to do a lot of work to sift through materials because we've already done it for them. I got it. So you bring them credibility, and I guess you're suggesting that the process of kind of developing the information throughout this due diligence period uh, and how that's packaged and communicated is what sets that client apart maybe from the other ones competing for the same capital. Is that, that That's exactly right. And look, we pride ourselves on... Um, the materials that we put together, that uh, it's very concise. It, we we want to let people make a quick decision whether they want to move forward and, uh-huh. and evaluate our clients or pass, because uh, it just wastes all of our time if they're in, if they have to ask a lot of questions to get to a no or to get to a yes. So uh, we spend a lot of time up front. So it'll take us three four weeks, you know, maybe north to, to put all the information together in a form that both our clients signs off on and and we believe tells the story. Right. Um, And that's a big piece of what we do um, to to make it very easy, again, for folks to evaluate our clients. So one last question to summarize it. So the the process of KBW is, I guess you have a due diligence period up front where you do your diligence on the client, put the book together, then you, I guess, send the book out to prospects, whether they're M&A prospects or capital sources, and then you handle all those communication, and then finally, I guess, is the negotiation. Is that is that the kind of the it, it is? And, of and it? I guess with the caveat that um, our clients are always in charge, so you know, nothing goes out the door without their approval. Okay. Um, no, uh, we'll we'll give guidance. So here's the people that we think would be interested in your company, um, but you have the safer if you say we're never going to do business with X Y Z. We cross them off a list. So it's really a process that's controlled by our client. Uh-huh. Um, we execute on the agreed-upon right. process uh-huh. um, and try to get the best outcome for our clients. But it's really, you know, there's at the end of the day, our clients can always say, we're not, we're not going to go forward, um, So, which is, which is fine. Right. Um, <clears throat> but we really want to focus on making sure that our clients are involved every step of the way. There's no surprises on their side. Um, on our side and make sure we get the right outcome that, that was agreed upon up front. If I go back to the very first uh, few comments that you made in this interview today, what surprised me was the importance of psychology. And so uh, as we wrap this up, you know, uh, our, I guess our listeners probably have learned, as I have from you, that it's not just the numbers, it's not just the valuation, but it's also the, the psychology of the deal. And does that also affect who the client actually selects as a partner? Is it also the human element there, not just the valuation methodology or the numbers, how much the company's worth? It's not just the price. Is it also the culture and... Yeah, uh, people it, that they're going to be working with is that is that it, what you're it, suggesting it, it, too? It is. I mean, we when we uh, run a process, and I'll I'll just use selling a company for instance. Um, you know, oftentimes in today's marketplace, the private equity community is the most prevalent buyers because there's hundreds of them out there, and over the years they've seen the the that you can make a lot of money in this sector. Um, and so we once we select the number of parties from the initial bidders, we have kind of a management presentation and a dinner. And as important as the all-day management meeting is the dinner. So we'll sit the CEO next to whatever the main partner is, 
and they'll have a conversation. And we had a deal. Uh, it was actually in the um, buy here, pay here uh, space, one of the larger players out there we raised um, some uh, mezzanine capital for. The best bidder in that instance um, they was our first meeting, and they – after that meeting, the CEO said, that was the most excruciating <laughs> dinner I ever had. We are not going to do business with them. Uh-huh. And they went with someone else that they thought was going to be a better partner for them that they could actually get along with, even though they didn't have the best rates. Okay. So as a private company, the owners can do whatever they want. It's not like a public company where you have to take the highest price. Right. So, um, so that's a really big piece of what we do. We want to make sure that over the next five years as they work with their particular partner, three years, whatever the time frame is, that it's a very good, rewarding experience for them that you, they don't say, God, I wish I did not do this transaction. And that's as big a piece of it as, as the price. On that note, I'd like to thank Keith Myers uh, today for this uh, very rich review of investment banking stories, benefits, and the outlook uh, for really a very bright future this year in 2018 for the debt buying and collection industry, and probably a very bright year for Keith Myers and his team at KBW. Thank you, Keith. Thank you. Thank you for joining Michael Flock and his guests on the Capital Club Radio Show. For more information on future interviews, please visit us at flockfinance.com. This program is brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance, where clients are provided knowledge and insights to help them grow their business in complex and risky markets. Flock is more than a transaction.